Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 101. This psalm is titled, I Will Walk with Integrity, and it's a psalm of David. And to give a little bit of context before we jump into it, this is right when he is about to be established as the king of Israel. And so this is, in a sense, an inaugural speech where he proclaims to himself what kind of king he will be, how he will conduct himself as the king, and also how he will rule the kingdom. And with the words that we just finished singing, it's very appropriate. It says, you're worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. And that is essentially what we see from David this morning. That's his greatest desire. Well, please look at the text now as we read God's word. Psalm 101. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's go to... Let's go to him in prayer. God, we come to you and we ask for your grace that you would allow us to see clearly the truths contained in this passage, that we would see this as what it truly is, the word of God that you've given for our instruction and for our good. Lord, you know the needs of everyone here today. And I pray that you would be mindful of our needs and be gracious to us. Amen. We'll have three observations in this text today. The first one will come from verses 1 and 2. Then we will look at verses 3 through 8. And then point 3 will be an application from the psalm. So beginning in verse 1 and 2, we see a man after God's own heart. We see that David is a man after God's own heart. In verse 1, you'll notice that he's singing and making music to God. And we all know that music, or any art form, is where we most clearly and fully express all of our emotions, whether it be painting, or theatrics, or music, or whatever it may be. This is how humans have always expressed their deepest desires and emotions. So when David tells us that he's singing and making music, we know that his deepest emotions are being put on display. And what is it that stirred up his heart so greatly? Look in verse 1. It's the steadfast love and justice of God. It's the character and attributes of God that excites him so much. We'll then move on to verse 2. We see that he says, 
I will ponder the way that is blameless. Well, already David's made it known that his heart is focused on God, and now he shows us that not only that, but his mind is focused on worshiping God as well. And it's here that we see the full involvement of him in his worship. He doesn't depend on just his emotions without having any intellect of who God is. And he doesn't go to the other extreme either and only desire to know facts about God without it having a practical result upon his emotions. He's having both of them working together. And so we can see that the heart and the mind work like gears, turning together to propel the life of faith forward. And that without one another, they're incomplete. And I said that these two work together, propelling one another forward. An example of this would be in my own life with my daughter Violet. When she was first born, I loved her. I knew nothing about her other than that she needed a diaper change every two and a half minutes. I didn't know anything about her, but I loved her. But as she grew, I learned more about her. I learned what her likes were and her interests. And that made me love her more and want to know her more. So the new, uh, more I knew her, I just kept growing back and forth, wanting to love her more and know her more. And they're building off one another. And just when I think I can't love her anymore, last week she comes to me and says, Daddy, I want to watch basketball. <laughs> God's good, right? I will tell you that a summer league game has never been more exciting than that game. And so parents, I'm sure you can relate to that. And if you have no children, well then with family members or with your spouse or with any loved one, it's the same in those relationships. That's how they grow. And so it's the same with God. It's the heart and mind work, working together to worship Him. So if you're sitting there and you say, I wish I was growing more as a Christian. I'm not committing any major sins. I'm not doing anything wrong. I just don't feel like I'm growing. I'm kind of in a stagnant point in my faith. Or maybe you are experiencing spiritual growth and you want to see that continue. Then I challenge you to ponder the ways that are blameless. Spend time in Scripture meditating on who God is. Right? And so when you open your Bibles and you start searching the Scriptures, you'll come across passages and say Matthew 6, where you see that the birds don't reap or sow or store into barns, and God still cares for them. How much more will He care for you? And so you see that God's providential, and that He's involved in every minor aspect of life. And so even though it may seem like God's not present in your life, even though it may seem like things aren't the way you want them to be, you can know with certainty that God loves you and is caring for you. And it's that truth about God that leads you to love Him more. And so because you love Him, you go back to the Scriptures and you keep flipping through and you're reading and you're saying, I want to know more about who God is. And you see His grace and His patience, which we must praise God for His patience because we're slow to learn. Right? Without God's patience, we would be in great, great, great need. So then you go back to the Word because you love this God that you're seeing. You keep going back to the Word. Then you come across James chapter 1 and you see that He's a God with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Well, that means that God's immutable. It means He never changes. 
What he's promised to do, he must do. Because he's God and his character requires it. So any promise that you can find in this entire book, you can know that it is true and certainly will come to pass because God has said it. And God cannot change and he cannot lie. And Surely that should produce emotion in your heart to love God even more. There's people in life that will let you down and their promises don't mean as much as they said it would. But with God... You can always trust Him. You can always lean on Him. And so this process of going to the Word and meditating on who God is, which produces love for Him, which produces a greater uh, desire to know Him, keeps going back and forth and back and forth until in verse 2 you see David say, when will you come to me? Right? His greatest desire is to be with God. Because he knows his God and he loves his God. David's about to be the king. He will have every possession he can imagine at his disposal. And all of that means nothing if he doesn't have his God. All of it means nothing without being in the presence of God. And so for us, this should be our greatest desire as well. It's so easy to get focused and fixed on our immediate problems in life and our immediate needs that we think those are the most important things in life. But friends, the most important thing is to have God and to be with Him. There will be a day when we are freed from sin completely when He returns and we will be with Him forever. If you're sitting here and you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you've never felt this way, and I use the word never because I know in the Christian life there's ups and downs. and A lot of times we don't feel close to God. We don't feel like he's our greatest desire. And I understand that. But I'm talking about never. If you've never felt this way, if you've never thought that to be with God is better than everything else, then friends, I want you to spend time thinking about the state of your soul. And don't leave here today without talking to me or someone else in this room. Moving on, we see that David's love for God takes practical action. And so we see a man with a plan in verses 3 through 8. He's revealed that he loves his God, and he knows his God intimately, and now he wants to reveal that God through his actions. Verses 3 through 4, he shows how he will conduct himself personally, how he will keep steadfast love to God through obedience. And then you see a break in the text, and verse 5 through 8 shows how he will conduct those under his rule, how he will justly govern the kingdom. And I want you to know, notice the order of that there. He will govern himself before he ever thinks of how he will govern the kingdom. And it's here that we receive great instruction on how we are to pursue holiness in our lives. Before we can ever have any impact on the kingdom, we must first make sure we are pursuing holiness ourselves. 
I think it's a biblical truth that's often overlooked because in our day we think that the way to grow in holiness is to add more good works. We can start going to church more. We can attend the prayer meetings. We can go do outreach communities. We can do all of these events and things. But that does not grow us in our holiness. The way to grow in holiness is the first battle sin. And you'll see that in verses 3 and 4. David says, I will walk with integrity. And verse 3 and 4 gives us his plan of action of how he will do that. It's not by adding good works to his life, but it's by battling sin. Look at verse 3 and 4. I will not set before my eyes anything worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. And a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. He's made a commitment to eliminating sin in his life. We must do the same. Jeff has been hammering the last few weeks that you must kill sin in its desire stage. You'll remember he talked about the anatomy of sin. And we must kill sin at its desire stage. We cannot simply be content with slowing sin in our lives or with keeping it at a safe distance or with just having a tolerable amount. As John Owen says, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no middle ground. You can imagine a gardener who goes out on a Saturday morning and he gets on his hands and knees and he has his scissors and he starts cutting back all of the weeds in his garden. And he spends hours doing this. And as the week goes on, these weeds grow back up. And so the next Saturday, he goes back out there and does it again. And for hours, he's maintaining that garden and he's cutting off every weed real short so you can't see it anymore so that his garden looks good and you only see the flowers. But week after week after week, he does the same thing over and over again. He just cuts back the weeds. He's not dealing with the issue. He's never got down to the root and ripped them out of the garden so they can't grow back again. We must deal with the root sin in our lives. So do you want to grow in gentleness? And start killing your sin of anger. Do you want to grow in hospitality? Then start killing your sin of selfishness and pridefulness that says that you don't need to serve others. And it's once you've done that, once you've uprooted that sin, that you'll then be able to lovingly serve others and put them before you. And you will grow in hospitality and kindness and patience. Do you want to grow in wisdom? Then stop thinking you have the answers to everything. Kill that sin and say, God, I don't know everything, but I know that if I ask you for wisdom, you give it generously to all without reproach. So I'm coming and I'm saying, Lord, please give me wisdom. Do you want to grow in a love for Christ? Then begin killing the sin which says you earned your salvation or you deserved it or you have special favor with God for any reason. It's once you can admit, I am only saved by God's grace alone. I did not deserve it, but He freely chose to save me, to glorify Himself, that you then see the cross more beautiful than you'd ever imagined. It's not by adding on to our lives, but by directly taking aim at the sin in our lives. 
that we'll see the most growth. Well, very practically, if you don't know how to do this, I want you to make a plan. Make a plan of attack. Even if you have to write it out on paper, do so. No army general would go into war without having a plan of action. And so we must do the same thing when we go to war against sin. We must pray that God would reveal to us our root sins. We must pray that he would graciously reveal to us how we are to go to war. But just as you wouldn't go to war without a plan, you also wouldn't go to war without understanding how to use the weapons you have. You can have the greatest war plan ever, but if you have soldiers who've never fought and don't know how to handle their weapons, it's not likely they will win. Well, friends, God has given us weapons in our fight against sin. Ephesians 6 specifically gives us those weapons. It says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul doesn't use this writing here simply because he has a fascination with weaponry. It's not just a cool idea he writes about. He expects you to see a spiritual war taking place and expects you to know you have weapons that you can use and you're expected to use them. Well, I've already challenged you to spend time pondering more about who God is so that your love for Him may increase. And now I challenge you to be serious in your war against sin in your life. Wouldn't it be amazing if people said of Midtown Baptist, you know, they don't have a lot. They meet in a little weird gym with some child paintings on the walls in the hallway. They don't have a light show. They don't have a very funny pastor. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> oh, wow. They take holiness serious. They take it very serious. I pray that would be true of our church. Well, like I said, the king cannot govern the kingdom unless he first governs himself. So if you want to be impactful for the kingdom, you must start by pursuing personal holiness. So very simply and practically, men who are husbands and fathers, you've been given the responsibility by God to lead your family. And you cannot do that well unless you first lead yourself. So if you want to love your wife and your children well, love God more. Spend time knowing Him. The same is true for the women in this room as well. Regardless of who you are, there's responsibilities God's given you in life to lead others, to share the gospel with others, and you can't do that unless you first truly love God. So we have seen David's heart 
that he desires to be with God, and that he desires to battle sin in his own life. And that is by that that he will then rule the kingdom with justice. But there's a huge problem. The problem is that we're preaching through 2 Samuel. And these two don't line up too well together. Because the problem is that David fails miserably. He says he's going to be a king of love and justice. And he fails. And it's his own words that convict him. Look in verse 3. David says, I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. But what does he do in 2 Samuel chapter 11? We read, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw the woman bathing. Then in verse 4, he says, a perverse heart will be far from me. But then, knowing that Bathsheba has a husband, he follows through on the plan to bring her to his house. He also says in verse 4, I will know nothing of evil, but he's the one who made the plan to have Uriah sent to the front lines to be killed so that no one would know about his own sin. Friends, it's not surprising that since David is not living a life of holiness that he can't lead the kingdom in that way either. Only two chapters later in 2 Samuel, we see this. In verse 7 of this chapter, David says, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. But what do we see? Last week, Jeff was preaching about it with Amnon and Tamar. It's David's own son dwelling in his house who is practicing deceit and no justice is given. He doesn't follow through on his vow to lead with justice. We can all agree that when David wrote this psalm, it was heartfelt. He wanted to be the king, to rule God's people, and to reveal God perfectly to them. He wanted to be that king, but he failed. At one time, people might have thought he was going to be that king, but as time went on and these things happened in his life, they had to say, he's not the king. He's not the promised one. It's not him. At this point, we don't need to just harp on David's failures and just shake our head at him in disappointment. That's not the point of this here. The point is to see that even David needs a savior. Even David needs a better king to come and rule him. So we should identify with him here and say, that's me. There's been many times in my life where I've said, this is how I'm going to live righteously. Here's my plan. This is what I'm going to do. And we fail over and over again. We need a better king to rule us. Point number three, we see that that true king is Jesus Christ. The true king is Jesus Christ. That doesn't shock anyone that that is where I went with this. It wasn't hard to figure out that Christ is the fulfillment there. We know that 
Jesus is the king who's the exact imprint of the nature of God. And so, of course, he perfectly reveals the Father to us. He's a king who always keeps steadfast love and obedience to God. He's a king who always rules with justice. And we could even read this psalm as if it were from Christ. And in a second, we will do that. But I want us to stop here and just talk about the fact that we're not connecting this to Christ because it helps make a good sermon. Or because the preachers at Midtown have decided this is our plan, is to always twist the passage until we can connect imaginary dots to Christ. That's not the goal here. The goal is that we must see Scripture this way. Every page of Scripture reveals Christ to us. And if we don't do that, then all we have in this passage is David wanted to be a good king, but he wasn't. You should try to be good. That's all I have for you. If we don't connect it to Christ, all we have is good morals. And if that's all we have, then whatever. We shouldn't waste our time coming here. We all know we should try to be better people. But that's not where this passage ends. All Scripture speaks of Christ. When Jesus resurrects, one of the first things He does is in Luke, we're told that He begins with Moses and the prophets and interprets to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. Jesus Christ knows He is the fulfillment of every page of Scripture. And He wants us to read the Bible this way. And so that must be our goal is when we read the Old Testament, I know we're very far removed from it. And we think, if I can just learn the characters and the plot and who was the good guy and who was the bad guy, and I can remember it and pass a trivia quiz on it, then I'm doing good. But if that's where we stop, then we've missed the point completely. We have to keep digging until we see Christ, until we see the true King on these pages. So now, in light of that, let's go back and read this psalm. Begin in second part of verse 2. Christ says, I will be a king that walks with integrity within my house. Christ will not set before his eyes anything that's worthless. He will hate the work of those who fall away, and it shall not cling to him. A perverse heart shall be far from Jesus. He will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, Christ will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, Christ will not endure. The true king will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with him. He who walks in the way that is blameless will minister to Christ. But no one who practices deceit will dwell in his house. No one who utters lies will continue before his eyes. Morning by morning, Jesus Christ will destroy all the wicked in the land. He will cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. That's where the fulfillment of this passage is, friends, when we read it with eyes to see Christ in it. David knows that God is a God of love and justice. 
And he wants to be the king that reveals that to people, but he fails. But Christ fulfills that. He perfectly reveals who God is to the people. He reveals God's love. He reveals God's justice. And as the king, we see his love for his people and that he provides for them and cares for them. And since he has gave his own life to secure them, to be his people, he will never lose any of them. He will love them till the end. We also see his justice. That when he returns, he won't allow sin to go unpunished. But that those who practice deceit will not continue before his eyes. There will be a day where every wrong is paid for. And Christ will come to judge them. There will also be a day when in his justice we will be with him. And those who were faithful will dwell with him and be in his presence. Friends, I hope that this excites you about who Jesus is. I hope this has led you to see more of who he is, and in seeing who he is, it's developed a greater love for him. And that at the beginning, when we talked about how these two work, that this will be true of Christ in your life. That you'll see the king and his love and his justice, and that will grow greater emotion in your heart for him. And back and forth, and back and forth until... You say, when will you come for me, Lord? Because to be with you and to minister to you and to be in your presence is the greatest desire of my heart. I pray that would be true of us. Let's pray. God, we had...